he could use it as trade bait uh, with Comcast over their one-third stake in Hulu, which, you know, I personally am a fan of. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, October 27th. Today, I'm joined by Bill Cohan to ask a question that is definitely on the mind of Disney CEO Bob Iger. How much is ESPN worth? It's one of the most well-known brands in media, but its revenue and its audience are slipping, and Wall Street has a lot of different ideas about how it should be priced. And later, Abby Livingston joins Ben to discuss what insiders are saying about Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. I'm joined today by Bill Cohan to talk about a question that's on a lot of people's minds in media and on Wall Street, which is how much is ESPN actually worth in its sale era, at least according to Disney. But before getting to that, Bill, I need to ask you uh, what you're dressing up as for Halloween. Are you going to be DJ Mm. Diesel, Sam Bankman-Fried, or Elon Musk? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's going to have to be DJ Desol this year, uh, Peter, because you know he's he's gone into retirement, and and so somebody has to carry the flame for Wall Street CEOs who uh, are also rap DJs, so or EDM DJs, I guess he technically is. So yeah, I'm happy to do that. I think that's what I'm going to be. Going to have to uh, do something about this hair, though. Yeah, well, I, you know, your kids are big uh, music junkies. I think they can school you in the distinctions underneath the term EDM. Uh, I see you more yep. as like a like a French house DJ, but uh, I'll let them decide mm. for you, and they can uh, hook you up with some decks maybe. Uh, Bill, ESPN, it came out this week that their operating income in fiscal year 2022 was $2.9 billion. Okay, if you don't know... A lot about ESPN. Wow, it sounds like a lot of money. But uh, you did the math and went back a few years. Just a few years ago, they made $4.4 billion a year. This is a rapidly declining business, not just in terms of revenue, but also culturally. (laughs) And that makes the question of how much their sale price is really complicated. Why is that? Well, I think the the, the first thing... Uh, Peter, and by the way, I'm, I assume it's always Halloween out there in Venice, uh, so you don't. Even <laughs> it is in broad daylight. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think the the first thing is you know we're in the era of you know everything on, is on the table at Disney. This is the everything is on the table era. 
Although I'm not sure that ESPN actually is because mm. uh, I think, I mean, it should be. Don't get me wrong. It definitely should be. But Bob Iger is uh, or claims to be totally uh, infatuated with live sports and doesn't want to part with it. You know, which is, uh, you know, he needs to be cold and rational about this because, uh, as many have suggested, it's kind of a, a melting ice cube at this point, mm-hmm. having once generated $4.4 billion in EBITDA, and there were once upon a time 100 million subscribers. Now there's probably like 70 to 75 million subscribers, and, uh, you know, they think it's actually going to end up at around 45 million subscribers. The EBITDA for fiscal year 2022, which ended uh, a year ago, was basically $3 billion. I think they'll probably be fortunate to have $3 billion again this year. I mean, uh, we know nine months of the year is in. Yeah, I think nine months was like a, a billion nine of EBITDA. You know, the, the final quarter is closed. It ended, uh, uh, you know, October 1st, but they're not going to release that information until November, November 8th. So that's in, in about, you know, 10 days or so. So, you know, we don't really know. I mean, the question is, is it 4.4 going to 3, going to 2.6, or is it 4.4 going to 3? And then, they, you know, they made a bunch of cost cuts uh, this year by, you know, taking out about 20 to 25 on-air performers, broadcasters. So that, you know, might save them money enough to actually show an increase in EBITDA. Maybe that's kind of the goal here. I don't know. But the question is, is, uh, you know, what you pay for $3 billion of EBITDA when it's likely to go down over time, even though I know they're like uh, uh, paddling like mad to try to create, uh, you know, ESPN, the digital product that uh, people will will, will pay for. So this is sort of like a a parlor game now on, on Wall Street between the Wall Street research analysts that cover companies like Disney, uh, investment bankers who are probably uh, salivating at the opportunity to potentially uh, sell uh, ESPN or do some sort of transaction with ESPN, perhaps even Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, uh, who Iger weirdly deputized to help him think through these things, even though they work at a, they don't work at Disney anymore. So what is uh, $3 billion of EBITDA worth that's probably likely, more than likely, going down? And it certainly had already gone down from 4.4. So various analysts have put valuations on it. You know, Rich Greenfield basically put a multiple of seven times on it. That's seven times three. That's 21. You know, the multiple kind of feels about right. I think, uh, you know, just out of, you know, pure kind of, uh, generosity. My thinking was it would probably be valued at around twenty-five billion, just just to be generous and to to give uh, Iger a reason to potentially part with it. If it were valued at twenty-five billion, that might give him the the uh, uh, incentive he needs to to do something with it. And at that point, he could either you know, as has been suggested once upon a time by Dan Loeb when he took a stake in Disney uh, last year that they float uh, ESPN and fill it up with some Disney's debt, uh, you know, 15 to 20 billion seems to be like a good number, although that's a lot of debt, obviously, you know, and that would relieve Disney of that debt and then, you know, float the damn thing off and let the market decide. Mm-hmm. Or he could use it uh, as uh, 
trade bait uh, with Comcast over their one-third stake in Hulu, which, you know, I personally am a fan of. And I'm sure that that could be uh, worked out between all the various bankers, et cetera, uh, as how to, uh, you know, value Disney's 80% stake in ESPN for that purpose. So a lot of options, but my gut here, uh, Peter, is that Iger is too in love with ESPN and he's not going to do a damn thing. It's funny, like, if you think about it, like, the average American, they don't know a lot about who owns who, like, which corporations own which companies, but, like, Disney and ESPN feel pretty symbiotic in the American mind, I feel like, and maybe that's part of it for Iger, too. But something jumped out at me from your piece that I think is important to mention, which is ESPN has committed about $45 billion to live sports rights through 2027. And as, the, as we move toward 2027, the competition from the Apples and the Amazons and the YouTube TVs is only going to get bigger and you know the prices are only going to go up. And so like ESPN's in this like catch-22 in terms of their bottom line, which is moving forward, do you double down on live sports and like pour even more money into these rights <laughs> and, you know, or hurt your bottom line? Or do you back away from those sports rights a little bit and, you know... You do have like North Dakota State versus Northern Iowa college basketball, <laughs> but you don't have much else. But also like that might save you some money. Like that, does that conflict feel like it's going to rear its head? This, this is why they got to get rid of it. And now, because, you know, uh, any buyer, whether it's the public market or, or Comcast, uh, I'm sure Comcast thinks they could run ESPN better than Disney did. And uh, I'm sure they could believe they could negotiate better uh, live sports deals than Disney did. But I mean, you know, if somebody were to buy it now, if they were to offload it now, you know, they've, you know, they basically got four years worth of rights mm-hmm. agreed to, which is, you know, very comforting. That gives, probably gives them four years, you know, gives them four years. But for Disney to keep owning this, I mean, the stock is kind of like at nine-year lows. Iger hasn't done anything, right? He's came back. A year ago, everything's on the table is from Sun Valley. He hasn't done any strategic move, except, mm-hmm. you know, there's this rumor of him uh, offloading, you know, Star TV in India, which is losing, what, three or $400 million a quarter. So that's kind of a good thing to get rid of. Uh, I guess he's cut this uh, gambling deal uh, with Penn Gaming. That's an embarrassment, if you ask me. That devalues the Disney brand and the ESPN brand, but okay. Maybe that's real politique. I think he should get rid of this immediately. And I think, you know, his board should be sort of holding his feet to the fire on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, it's a fun asset. I understand why he likes owning it. I get it. But the numbers just don't work anymore. And he needs to take into account his long-suffering shareholders here. And the thing is, if he, if he doesn't, you know, now he's got my friends at uh, Tryon back, Nelson Peltz, the smiling crocodile. Uh, if, <laughs> if he doesn't, uh, you know, and Nelson has shown once already last year and earlier this year that he's more than happy to start a proxy fight. He owns about two and a half times more stock than he did the first go round. Uh, the stock is cheaper now. It's underperformed for longer. Uh, if he wants to get in a big fight with Nelson Peltz, Uh, He can do that, or he can begin to take real strategic moves that uh, I think, you know, the market wants him to do, or or else, you know, it's dead money. Do you want to be dead money, uh, Bob? I don't think so. Words of wisdom from DJ Diesel here. Uh, Bill, have a great Halloween weekend, man. 
Thank you. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Abby Livingston is here to talk about Speaker Mike Johnson. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Abby Livingston, back on the program to help explain who the heck is Mike Johnson, (laughs) the uh, literally plucked from obscurity Christian fundamentalist congressman who somehow became Speaker of the House this week after uh, almost a month without any leader in Congress. Abby, it seems like there were plenty of people in Washington even who didn't know who this guy was. So Tell me a little bit about what you are hearing in terms of his background and how he became the sort of unlikely unity pick for Republicans. Well, and I I will set this up with a little bit of a plug for a previous job I've had. I have written for this book called The Almanac of American Politics, which is a little encyclopedia of every member of Congress. And every political junkie in town owns this book. And it is for this very purpose. It's that member of Congress you've never heard of who suddenly blows into the news. So the first time I grabbed my almanac was when Gabby Giffords was shot, who was very much a backbencher who no one had ever heard of. And so this was an almanac of American politics day, a scramble. Everyone grabbed theirs. But that is exactly why he probably got this job. He was fairly unknown. I mean, I think the conference knew him, Republicans sort of knew him, but he was not high enough on the food chain, not at a level where he had grudges. And that was basically the thing that thrust him in there. You know, the first time I ever heard him speak was his acceptance speech in the chamber on uh, Wednesday. And it came off to me very much like a church sermon. I mean, he had some kind of jokes in there. He he needled Sheeta, Sheila Jackson Lee, who is very loquacious, but it was in a playful way. It was very congenial. But at the same time, it was a very overt religious message in a chamber mm. where not everyone was is a Christian. He seems very mild-mannered, but he is extremely conservative, extremely socially conservative. And on top of that, His ascension was so swift and so spontaneous that there really hasn't been any vetting of him. And so within hours of him getting the gavel, Democrats just in the open source world of the internet started pulling quotes on abortion that I promise you going to be tied to vulnerable Republicans running for re-election next year. Yeah, obviously, that, that seems like the number one and most obvious downside of Johnson is this guy was not really vetted. Or if he was, maybe Republicans just didn't care about this stuff or feel like if it's going to impact them. But yeah, he said that doctors should be imprisoned for performing abortions, that gay marriage is an abomination. Um, He's associated with a group that says the earth is 6,000 years old and there were dinosaurs on the ark. He helped lead the legal effort to overturn the 2020 
election and to keep Trump in power. He seems like such an easy target for, for Democrats to elevate this guy and turn him into a pinata in campaign ads. Is there going to be a reckoning for any of that? Are, are Republicans worried? Yes. Uh, the ones who run campaigns <laughs> okay. are concerned. Um, what the thing is, though, and it's a very different media environment, but it took a cycle or two for Republicans to really spend the kind of money and spend and and use the time needed to define Nancy Pelosi by 2010. This is going to be an expensive education campaign, but I have no doubt you are going to see all of this. And, you know, just in my personal life, I started getting texts from liberal people in my life going, who is this? And he very much upset them on uh, cultural issues. So I I think Mike Johnson is going to become very famous, which is interesting because I even today I, I spoke with an operative, a Republican operative who said, whatever his name is, I can't remember. So that is where we are. Abby, you and I have talked before about how whoever was elected speaker, they were going to have to deal with all the same problems that McCarthy had in terms of walking in the line between appeasing the far right and then actually doing the job of being speaker, which requires compromise, just sort of by definition, if you're going to have an even halfway functional government. So how do you think Johnson fares there? Does he get any kind of honeymoon period as he works his way into the job or, or right away, right off the bat, is he going to be faced with, with Republicans who are really holding him to the line to, uh, to deliver on these promises? I think there is a very brief honeymoon because out of more than anything at all, people are exhausted. Republicans are just relieved to not be fighting. And right now, what it appears Every time there is a regime change like this in Washington, people are scrambling. They're trying to get their jobs, find out if they're going to keep their jobs. There's a lot of questions about changes in leadership at various Republican entities now. So that's the phase we're in right now. A government shutdown is not on very many minds right now because it's so in comparatively in the distant future. But this is going to be a hellacious introduction to the speakership. As it stands, he's probably going to be a very weak speaker. He's not demonstrated he's a good fundraiser. That's a good carrot and stick punishment. I mean, he probably doesn't know that much about the institution of the speakership. So it is going to be a crash course. I think there are also very, very deep wounds in this conference that have yet to heal, and it's going to take a very long time. And I think you're going to have a lot of very empowered chairmen and chairwomen in the Republican Party who are going to try to exercise their power amid this weakness that we perceive. Yes. Yeah, Abby, I'm glad you brought up the fundraising angle here, because possibly the most important job of the speaker is actually the financial one. Like you said, Johnson's never really raised any significant amount of money. There is so much donor maintenance involved in this gig, and and Johnson doesn't even really have a staff. So is, is there some sort of turnkey operation that he inherits from McCarthy, or does he have to sort of turn all of this on from scratch? Yes. So he will inherit some some of this institutional fundraising. Um, and the point's been made to me prior to this that Republicans are pretty relieved that McCarthy was in this job for as long as he was because he is so good and he could lay the fundraising foundation. And when Paul Ryan came in, there were very minute changes in the political operation when he was handed over from Boehner. So we, it's yet to be seen what Mike Johnson will do on that front. But um, And so a speaker will raise money no matter what, but it is... It is a huge concern. Donor maintenance is. And so what that means basically is you don't want your first ask to be for money. You want to meet someone, look them in the eye and sort of start charming them and then come back to them. But on the other hand, 
Republican donors know that next year is a fight for the gavel and they have no buffer, so they may go ahead and give. But this is an extremely dysfunctional situation. And one other thing is there's speculation that Steve Scalise, who is apparently pretty tight with Mike Johnson, um, will help shoulder that burden and that there may be some expectations that Elise Stefanik needs to step up and help with that operation as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. We'll see if the uh, sort of political void there, at least in terms of his experience level, leads to some other people stepping in. And, um, you know, say what you will about McCarthy and his lack of a fixed political compass. But um, he was a negotiator when he needed to be. And he was definitely a rainmaker for the caucus. He knew how to raise money. He knew how to get people elected. Johnson does not really have that institutional knowledge. He doesn't have those relationships. So we'll, we'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks and months in terms of his ability to quickly build those bridges and bring other people in to help him do the job. It will be a rollicking story to follow. Abby, thanks as always. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.